Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Zandi, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Ryan, Ryan Sweet. Uh, hi, Ryan. How are you? I'm good. I'm down at the beach, so yeah. no complaints. You look like a beach bum. Yeah, my whole family, we're all beach bums. We could stay on the beach for, for weeks. How long did it take you to grow that beard? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, since vacation started. Yeah. It looks so it's been like, like a week. The old man in the sea, I must say, though, you look, uh, you yeah. know, you look a, uh, like you've been out uh, pretty weathered there, uh, out on in the, in the ocean there looking for marlin or something. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm chasing my three kids around. It's not really oh. relaxing. We can't, my wife and I can't just sit on the beach and, you know, take a nap. We got to chase them and make sure they don't go too far out in the ocean. Yeah, I forgot about those days. Yeah. And that was Chris Dorides. Chris was chuckling. Uh, hey, Chris. Yes. Hi, Mark. And you're in the office safely. I, I, I am in the office. Yeah. Any more folks showing up or is it still pretty Spartan there? Quite, quite sparse. I think we have three people on my floor today. So. Goodness. <laughs> uh, remote work uh, is live and well at Moody's Analytics. That's for so sure. So to give you an idea, there's one more person in Westchester on Chris's floor than there are uh, people in Ocean City, New Jersey. So Dante... He's right behind. He's a couple streets oh, behind us. No. Oh, you're saying colleagues? <laughs> yeah. Our colleagues—they're all there. You ever? Oh, yeah, there. we're all down in Ocean City. Oh my! Oh my gosh! Uh, so who's doing the work? Is that—is that me, Chris? Chris but, and I are doing the work. They're remote. They are they're remote. Uh, yeah, they're I didn't publishing. say I'm not working. Yeah, <laughs> good point. You're on this podcast. Yeah. Well, this is a special podcast. Uh, a little bit uh, different than the others. We're going to focus on. A topic. Uh, the topic at hand is stagflation, uh, high inflation, uh, and high unemployment. We'll come back to the definition of that. Uh, this has been top of mind uh, uh, here in the U.S. and really all over the world. Inflation is high most everywhere because of the uh, shocks created by the pandemic and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And while we've been kind of downplaying the risks that we actually get into a stagflation scenario. Uh, we are getting lots and lots of questions from you, dear listeners. And so we thought we'd kind of do a deeper dive here and uh, talk about uh, stagflation in a more rigorous way. And that's the purpose of today's conversation. So it's, it's about stagflation. And the first thing I think we need to do is, uh, is define it, uh, define stagflation. Uh, that's, that's a kind of a slippery concept. Uh, hey guys, should I take a crack at that? Would you be okay with that if I kind of put my sort of straw man definition out there and you can kind of run with it? Does that sound okay? Yeah, sounds good. I go for okay. it. All right. Okay. Well, in my mind, there are three necessary and sufficient conditions for stagflation. First, uh, high inflation. Uh, and, and high inflation... I would say is an inflation rate, underlying inflation rate, uh, that is more than a percentage point above the Federal Reserve's target. So let's just use CPI, consumer price inflation, as our benchmark. I would put the top end of the target, the Fed's target, at about 2.5%. So it, uh, first condition for stagflation is inflation that is uh, consistently above uh, 3.5%, a full point above the uh, Fed's uh, target range. <clears throat> Second, high unemployment. Uh, and here, uh, I would say that would mean un an unemployment rate that is uh, more than a percentage point above 
our estimate of the unemployment rate consistent with full employment. Right now, I'd put that at about 3.5%. That's current unemployment. Some would put it higher. I think the Fed would put it at 4%. But let's say uh, high unemployment would be anything above 4.5%, uh, you know, probably closer to 5 uh, in the current context. So inflation above, the CPI inflation above 35 uh, and unemployment above 45 uh, probably closer to 5 And then the third criteria would be um, it, you, need, you need high unemployment, high inflation for a period of time, not a month or two, or not even just for a few months. It's got to be a while, you know. So I'd say certainly no less than six months, probably closer to you know nine, twelve months before I'd say, okay, we're in, we're in a, an environment of persistently high unemployment, persistently high inflation, um, and uh, th that's the definition definition I would use. I mean, you you could kind of combine the high unemployment, high inflation to something called what has historically been called the misery index. That's just simply take the inflation rate, add the unemployment rate, and the two of those two things are called the misery index for obvious reasons. I mean, if you have high inflation, high unemployment, it's a miserable economic environment to be in. People don't feel very good about how things are going. And if you uh, use that, that would say, uh, in the, by my definition, you'd need a, a misery index of two and a half percent plus four and a half percent that would be seven percent that that feels low i mean i kind of want to say the misery index has to be double digit you know but you know not necessarily i mean if i told you we were at you know three and a half percent inflation and a five percent unemployment rate between now and the end of 2023 i don't that feels like stagflation to me uh you know at least some variation uh of the theme so uh, that's the definition. So, okay, so the three criteria, persistently high unemployment above the full employment unemployment rate, persistently high inflation above the Fed's target range, and uh, persistent is the, the key word here. It's got to be got to be at least six months, probably closer to a year before you call it stagflation. What do you think uh, as a working definition of uh, stagflation? Chris? Yeah, I, th I think that... You, you hit on all the factors, and I think you also hit on the fact that duration matters a lot, right? It's not just a temporary blip that we're talking about. It's something that is persistent, um, and there and that there are shades of gray here, right? It's it's one thing if um, yeah, unemployment or inflation is just over two percent or closer to three percent, right? Um, and and I, in addition to that, I would say the trend matters, right? If things are moving along, but they're slowly improving, right? That's a, a different situation than if things are moving the opposite direction. So I think as a framework, it makes sense. And then the degree to which we worry depends on the specifics about the duration and the trajectory that we're yeah. under. And, and I guess you, you kind of implicitly made a good point. And as there's no arbiter of how to define no. stagnation. No. <laughs> I mean, we debated, we've been debating recession here for weeks, months, and there is a, you know, we've all agreed, I think most of us agreed, we have a final arbiter on recession. That's the, the Business Cycle Dating Committee, a group of academic economists at the National Bureau of Economic Research. But there's, they're, they're not going to sit there and say, oh, this is a stagflation. There's no one out there. In fact, I, what about us, Scott? You, you, the three of us should be the arbiters. What do you think? Of that works for me. I like it. Yeah, mm -hmm. I like it too. Yeah. So your misery index right now is at 12. Yeah. 
But and I wouldn't call this stagflation, no. right? Oh, I wouldn't call it either because late 70s, early 80s, when probably the last time we had stagflation was 22. Yeah, but going back to my definition, it doesn't meet the criteria, right? Because Today? unemployment is 3.5%. That's the right, right. full employment unemployment rate. So it's not, we don't have high unemployment. We're, right. we're not even close. You need both. You need both. Yes. It's not right. Yeah. High inflation. And the other thing I'd say is the inflation rate, you know, it is elevated at, on CPI inflation. It's eight and a half percent through July year over year, but it feels like it's coming in here pretty fast, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the other thing. The to Chris's point, the trajectory is doesn't doesn't feel like stagflation if it continue if, if we continue on this 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 deceleration uh, path that we're on seemingly on right yeah. now. I'd say the, the misery index is a nice rule of thumb, but 1% increase in unemployment matters a whole lot more to yes. uh, in consumers, households than 1% in inflation, I would argue. So really? I don't know. I don't know. That's a great, great question though. Let me ask you that. So 1% unemployment, that means what? How many people does that represent? 1% uh, of the labor force, the labor force is 150 million that would be 1.5 million Americans who lost their jobs, right? That's a recession. That's a, yeah. that's a one percentage point increase in mm -hmm. unemployment. It was one and a half million people unemployed. Yeah. 1% increase in inflation. Uh, you know, that, what is, what is, uh, what is income? What, what's nominal income now? It's, I want to say, uh -huh. Uh, maybe you can look that up. I'm not sure. I'm doing it right now. Okay. You want nominal? Yeah, nominal uh, income, total personal income, because I'm going to take one percent of that, and that that's the loss of purchasing power, right? right? I mean, that's kind of how I would do it. Yeah. Right. I, I, I'm going to. These so are first order say, effects, right? I say personal and, income is 17 million, 17 trillion dollars. I'm just saying. I just. May, I should get a cowbell if I'm right. Uh, you're way off. Oh, 21.7 really? billion. Trillion? Trillion. 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 Yep. Oh, because GDP is like 21 trillion, right? So income is this. That really it says pers just... nominal personal income. Personal income in outlays. Really? It's 21 trillion. As of June. So. I guess there's one trillion. Okay, anyway. So 21. Okay, so 1% of that's. Is uh, two hundred and ten billion. Billion. Right? Yep. That's a that's a cowbell. What, what's a cowbell? <laughs> I one, one percent of twenty one trillion. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, you got low bar. You got yeah. low bar. So we're so it's the difference between one point five million unemployed Americans or a loss of two hundred and ten billion dollars in purchasing power for all Americans. Mm -hmm. And you're saying the one percentage point on unemployment feels worse than the one percentage point on inflation. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. I, that's an interesting question though. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure, but fair enough. Fair enough. Depends where you're at as well, of course. Right. And yeah. Yeah. Moving sure. From, <laughs> you know, if you're at 19% inflation and you go to 20, right. Who cares? Right. <laughs> oh my gosh. Don't even, I, I, I don't even want to visualize that possibility. Yeah. But yeah, I hear you. Well, well we're going to go global we, in a moment here, right? So. Yeah, true. Good point. Uh, because the stagflation concern is not only here, it's everywhere. And uh, But before we go there, yeah. so are we all in agreement that, well, first, let me ask you, Ryan, anything else you want to add to the definition? 
of stagflation, the kind of the uh, benchmarks no, I used? I think you hit on all of it. I mean, okay. do, do you think inflation expectations should be factored in? Like, well, that goes to, to the persistency. Dislodged? That goes to the persistency. Okay. So I think that's more a, a cause of, yeah, uh, no, not, I see, yeah. not a, uh, not something I, I would use to define stagflation. Um, but we'll come back to that because clearly inflation expectations matter a lot in terms yep. of getting to stagflation. Okay, so we're all in agreement uh, uh, on that. Um, so, and we're all in agreement <clears throat> that at the current point in time we are not experiencing stagflation because unemployment is just too low. Correct. We're creating too many jobs. Un unemployment is low. The inflation is painfully high, but the uh, labor market is very strong. You would agree right. with that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. What about Europe? Uh, I mean, there, I guess the same thing at this point in time, right? Unemployment is still pretty low in most of those countries, even though recession seems more likely. But inflation is higher now in most of those countries, like the UK. Yeah, yeah. I would so, say some some countries are already in stagflation, like in oh, Estonia. You would. Estonia with the double digit, what I think eighteen nineteen percent inflation, and I think unemployment rate probably five six percent. Hey Ryan, that deserves a cowboy. I you know Estonia really. You, we talked about it a couple podcasts ago. So I'm, did we? I'm going off memory. So oh, is Estonia. That right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, that, I know it's elevated because of all the um, uh, exposure to Russian gas that right. they have. It's very acute there. Right. So, right. and if you go a little beyond Europe, like Turkey, certainly, I, I think right. you classified that as being in stagflation. Right. I, I actually, I don't know. I know the inflation rate is very high. I didn't realize is unemployment that high as well, well above its full employment unemployment rate. I, I didn't know that. Uh, I believe so. Oh, I believe that's so. a good question. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So there are cases, small number in small countries, but there are some cases overseas that are, if they're not in stagflation, they're pretty close, you know, even by our definition. And, and just to, if we're going cross country, it's important to point out that the full employment unemployment rate varies a lot from place to place, right? It's, you know, much higher in much of Europe compared to the United States. So a three and a half percent unemployment rate in Europe would be well beyond full. We did a bloom past full employment. So, uh, but um, but uh, there's differences there. Okay, uh, let's then uh, ask the question: What are the causes of stagflation? How do how do economies get into this mess? And of course, in the U.S., the last time we were in a stagflation environment, at least by our definition, that would have been in the 70s, second half of the 70s and the first half of the 1980s. Uh, what What are the underlying causes of stagflation? Chris, you, you want to tackle yeah, that? Sure. So I, I would say, broadly speaking, there are two causes. One is a supply shock, like the oil shocks that we experienced in the 70s. And the second is some type of policy error. And, it, and it's probably the combination of those that really enhances or leads to the a truly uh, miserable uh, stagflation environment. That's what happened during the 70s in the US, right? We had, the, we had these uh, supply shocks in, around oil. And at the same time, we had monetary policy errors in terms of the Fed easing when they should have been tightening. Um, we had price controls on the fiscal side. You had uh, some, some policies also that were uh, certainly contributing to additional infl inflation. So wage and price controls, that certainly was, a, um, was problematic. Um, what else happened? We had um, 
we had the the gold standard, right? We transitioned off the gold standard, so depreciation of the dollar. So that transition period also uh, likely contributed to the uh, the situation as well. Maybe uh, uh, as one-offs, each one of those might have been uh, handled appropriately, but it really was that combination of all those factors that led to a particularly painful stagflationary environment. Right. So I, maybe I, I maybe you said it, and I'll, but I'll def, uh, provide more of a framework around it. But sure. I think the, the first thing you said is a supply shock. So that's a, a hit to the supply side of the economy. And back in the 70s and 80s, that was primarily oil, yep. OPEC oil embargo, the Iranian uh, revolution. Uh, in the current context, that would be the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the higher oil and ag and commodity prices, and the pandemic. Uh, so there's some similarities there. The second right. you said is a policy error. In you, I guess you're, you're there you're focusing on the, the Federal Reserve. They didn't see this back in the 70s and 80s. They didn't understand or see because stagflation was not something that they we had experienced it just uh, they didn't understand it they didn't, and they were they were trying to figure out how do they respond to this supply shock do i uh raise interest rates to slow growth to combat the high inflation or do i um, do i uh, worry about the high unemployment and i ease lower interest rates to try to help the economy out and bring down unemployment Two very different policy prescriptions, and uh, obviously yeah. they got they got it wrong. Uh, yeah, the stagflation wasn't even allowed in the model, right? In the, right. In wasn't the, even allowed in, in, in the in the original Keynesian models, right? There was there was no provision for stagflation. It wasn't possible under that framework. Yeah, yeah, exactly. this trade off unemployment yeah. and yeah, inflation. Good point. Yeah, you had that 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 very Phillips clear curve. Phillips curve, so called yeah. Phillips curve, right? Yeah. Uh, and I guess the one thing that contributed to that mistake was a complete misunderstanding or no understanding or even no thought of this concept of inflation expectation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. that's right. And Ryan, do you want to explain that, why that's so, what that is and why that's so important? Why inflation expectations are so important? Yeah, what, you know, and, and, and you know, how, how we think about that now. There's a couple of ways that we kind of look at and measure inflation expectations, you can look at surveys of consumers. So University of Michigan, for example, asked consumers, what are their expectations for inflation, you know, one year from now, five to 10 years from now. Uh, and what gets embedded in people's inflation expectations are the prices that they see on a daily basis. So it's gasoline prices, it's food prices. Uh, but the Fed also looks at market-based measures, inflation expectations. And I think, I think the three of us pay way more attention to market-based measures because that's where the bond investors are putting their money where their mouth is. Uh, and why inflations are, or inflation expectations are important is that you know, it gets embedded in people's behavior. You know, consumers alter their behavior depending on where they think inflation's headed you know, in the medium term, uh, and businesses do the same. So that effectively will determine what, how people behave now is their expectations of where prices are headed down the road. Yeah, and I guess in the 70s and 80s, there was not even a kind of a concept of inflation expectation. It was just, that was, I guess that concept was born out of that period. People realized, oh my gosh, you know, if inflation gets embedded in people's expectations about future inflation, it's it's much more likely that that inf inflation will be realized and get kind of embedded, entrenched in, uh, in the economy. And that Phillips, so-called Phillips curve, the relationship between 
you know, unemployment and inflation shifts. It kind of moves mm -hmm. out, you know, because of the shift in inflation expectations. And in the 70s and 80s, how would you measure market-based measures of I don't think you could, you, right? You didn't have tips. You didn't have treasury inflation protected securities back then. So Right. I guess you could have teased it out of the Yeah, you could tease it out of the bond market. You could do long-term yeah. interest rates, I guess. I, I think you could. Uh yeah, you could probably decompose the 10-year. Yeah. 10-year treasury yeah. yield into the constituent components and mm -hmm. and kind of back out inflation expectations. The residual, yeah. But it, certainly no one was doing that at the time. Uh, no, and it, it just know. wouldn't be as clear cut as using tips today. Yeah. And and I didn't have the real time data, right? Let's, right. Or you'd be, you'd be making a host of assumptions. Yeah. Right. Right. And I guess the the other sort of concept that we now have a pretty good understanding of that was born in that period that's related to high inflation expectations is the kind of the wage price spiral, right? Mm -hmm. So right. Uh, if workers think inflation is going to be high in the future, they go to their employer and they say, look, my cost of living is rising quickly. I have to pay more to commute uh, into work. I have to pay more for my clothing and to go to work for my uh, to take care of my kids so I can come to work. You, Mister Mister Miss Mrs. Employer, Miss Employer, you gotta you gotta pay me more to compensate for that. And then the business person says, "Oh, okay, uh, Mister Miss Worker, I'll pay you more because they think that." Uh, inflation is going to be high. They can pass along their higher costs right. in the form of higher prices. And you get into this kind of self-reinforcing negative wage price, what we call spiral, wage price spiral. And that is all a result of these higher inflation expectations. And once you get into that dynamic, then you get into this kind of high inflation, unsustainable uh, kind of economic environment where the economy starts falling apart and, uh, and unemployment starts rising and you got this combined bad very noxious combination of high inflation and high unemployment but in yeah, so mark uh, it's getting kind of expensive to drive in it's getting expensive at the grocery store uh you know chris and i could use <laughs> yeah but your inflation expectations are well anchored I oh they're say. anchored yep yeah they're well anchored you know they're coming back in yeah i know yeah yeah. So that doesn't work with me. Uh, <laughs> that argument. Uh, here's the third thing, though, I'd say. So, Chris, you said causes. First, yeah. supply shock. Second, uh, policy error. Meaning Both the monetary and fiscal. Monetary and fiscal. Yeah. Uh, oh, and on that front, going back to Europe, that feels like that could be an issue, right? I mean, in terms of monetary policy. Both monetary and fiscal policy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right, we were talking about that today earlier. We had a meeting of international economists, our international economists, and we we're talking about, particularly the UK. They're thinking about uh, provide because they're you know Boris Johnson's out and somebody else is coming in, and that I guess the leading candidate wants to uh, pass fiscal support to help with the cost of uh, the higher energy costs that they're facing, uh, and uh, that's fiscal so-called fiscal stimulus, borrowing money to provide this. Uh, cash to households to navigate through. But that kind of runs counter to the policy prescription that you know you would think you would follow because if inflation is high, you want to get inflation down, but they are kind of juicing the economy with this extra stimulus. You know, very it's understandable what they want to do. They're people are hurting and they don't want them yeah. to hurt, particularly low income households have a big energy bills, particularly as winter approaches and they want to help them. But on uh, but the result of that may be it keeps Inflation persistently high, 
exacerbates the inflation expectations. And it feels like the UK has a much greater risk of going into stagflation be because of that policy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Would you consider that a policy error then? Yes. Yeah. Okay. There's also talk of price controls across the continent as well, right? Oh, I, I really, I, I don't know that they're yeah. uh, certainly their party. There's a lot of elections going on. Oh, so only yeah. you guys in yeah. Italy, the, the, those guys are probably it's the Italians that are thinking about. Yeah, there's always some party in Italy that <laughs> some party. Yeah. advocates for any old policy. Did price controls work in the 70s and 80s? They did not. Yeah, they I didn't. Not. Yeah, I didn't think they worked. They worked briefly. They and they just exacerbated well, the problem, right? Yeah. yeah. They work work until they don't. Right? Well, here's the third third factor I throw in though, the third cause. And this is maybe a big difference between now and then in the 70s and 80s, is kind of some structural factors or forces, and maybe you mentioned this in the economy that reinforce the wage price dynamic. So for example, if you go back in the 70s and 80s, the economy was much more manufacturing based, construction based. It was highly unionized, but more importantly, a lot of the labor contracts had so-called cost of living adjustments, so-called COLAs. So they automatically had, uh, workers got automatic increases in their wages when inflation was high. So that, that served to reinforce this formation of this wage price spiral, and of course, which is at the, at the heart of the, of the stagflation scenario. You see so, that as a consequence of unionization? No, well, not necessarily. I think it was well intentioned, right? The work, uh, yeah. you know, in a low inflation environment, you're saying, "Hey, guys, you employer, you just got to compensate for me for inflation, plus whatever productivity growth I get." So I don't think per se that's a bad thing, except if you get into this kind of stagflation environment with a supply shock, and then all of a sudden it's a turbocharger on this wage price spiral, and you know causes all kinds of problems. And so I think a, uh, as a result of the experience of the 70s and 80s and the monetary pol policy response that to ring that out, a lot of those COLA contracts got broken. And, you know, COLAs, I think, are, I don't know what share of contracts have those today, but I, I would imagine pretty small. Not many. I mean, the biggest one that comes to mind is the federal government. Do they have cost of living adjustments mm -hmm. in, the, in those contracts? I, I, I didn't believe so. Oh, really? Are you sure? Because we, yeah. No, not, I'm not 100% sure. Yeah. But whenever, you know, I forget what month it is, you can calculate the COLA adjustment. And every January, the personal income report talks about the cost of living adjustment for federal workers. I don't yeah. know if it's everyone. It's just, I can yeah. pull it up. Well, Social Security. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's, that's a, a big, big one. Uh, COLA. All right. That's definitely the case. So. Yeah. Every Social Security recipient gets a one-year bump related to last year's inflation rate. So all the Social Security recipients this year are going to get a big increase, right? Because right. based on last year, the inflation rate as of, I think now, pretty they're going to reset it pretty here pretty soon. Can't exact, I think it's August or something where they use that month to, re, to figure out what the cost of living adjustment is going to be. But that's a good point. Um, and I guess there's you know other structural differences you know between now and then. Uh, 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 you know, uh, well, we clearly aren't as dependent on oil or energy right. in, as an economy. So, That's and certainly point. not as much on foreign oil, right? So, yeah, um, there's right. some insulating effect, which may be a reason why we haven't experienced an even worse uh, situation given uh, what's going on in energy markets. Right. Okay. So, uh, supply shock. Yeah. Uh, now, considering. 
the, what's going on now and whether there's the fodder for or the groundwork for stagflation developing in the current environment, certainly supply shock. We got that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, more than one. More than yeah. one. <laughs> so yeah, it feels even worse than what happened in the 70s yeah. and 80s, right? That was, well, of course, well, as you say, oil was much more important back then. So maybe it's the same, roughly the same thing. But we've got the pandemic disrupting global supply chains and labor markets. That's a massive supply shock. Fading, but still, you know, it's playing a big role. And second, the Russian invasion, that's higher oil, natural gas, agricultural, metals prices. So two massive shocks to the supply side of the economy. So we got that. Um, this, I guess the structural difference, there are big structural differences, right? We, it doesn't feel like we're in the same kind of league. So that would suggest stagflation would be less likely now than in the 70s and 80s. And that gets to the policy response. Here's, I suspect, is the big difference between now and then, yeah. right? Right. And, and Ryan, so uh, do you want to talk about that? I mean, what is the appropriate policy response to an environment where stagflation might become, you know, more of an issue? Well, I thought you laid it out well earlier in that you know, the Fed really doesn't have a playbook for stagflation. Stagflation. Central banks in general don't have playbooks for stagflation because it's their worst nightmare because how do they respond? Do they raise interest rates to slow the economy down, to bring inflation back down closer to their target? Uh, but at that, if they do that, then unemployment continues to rise. Or vice versa, do they cut interest rates to stimulate the economy to reduce unemployment, but then that would juice inflation higher? So the Fed's response in the 70s and 80s was just jack up interest rates as quickly as possible, as aggressively as possible, uh, to ring out inflation. But that wasn't, you know, that pushed us into a recession. So there's no, you know, playbook for that. And that's why, you know, later on when we talk about stagflation odds in the US, they're low because the Fed's facing Hobson's choice, either push the economy into a recession to avoid stagflation or risk the economy eventually falling into a period of stagflation. I guess in the 70s and 80s, the, the, the policy response was first in error. Because uh, here's the thing, uh, we uh, probably should have said earlier, the stack, the high inflation that developed in the late 70s and early 80s actually started all the way back in the 60s, right? Because yep. oh, we yeah. had, and in that, the, the 60s inflation coming into the 70s was felt more like it was demand driven, right? You had a uh, Vietnam War, you had the Great Society, right. you had a lot of government uh, spending, expanding fiscal deficits and debt. And it pushed the economy past full employment and wage and price pressure started to develop. Then you got into the 70s. And I think in 1973, you know, you had uh, the first oil embargo and that caused oil prices to go skyward. And we were much more dependent on oil back then. And then another round of spikes in 1980. The Fed didn't really understand the dynamics here. It was more focused on the impact on the of the of these shocks on the on growth and high unemployment accommodated with easier policy trying to keep the economy moving and keep unemployment down but that just exacerbated the inflation and the it got to a place so that by 1979-1980 when Paul Volcker finally became fed chair we had i think back then 15% consumer price inflation and unemployment was you know headed towards double digits. I mean, you know, we closed in at 10% on the worst of it in the early 80s. And it's, there was a massive change in policy, monetary policy at that point in time, where Paul Volcker said, no, this, this, is, we're just, this is all wrong. 
we got to ring out the inflation's our number one problem. We got to ring that out. And so I'm going to jack up interest rates, meaning we're going to have a, a doozy of a recession. And we did to ring out those inflation expectations and bring inflation back in. And once we get inflation back in, then we can start worrying about the unemployment and trying to get uh, to the other side of the recession. So it was wasn't, wasn't a the mistake. And then, then Paul, Paul Volcker really brought the hammer down. And wasn't the Fed less independent pre-Volcker? I think that's I think that's fair to say because you remember uh, yeah. reading all those reports and stories about you know the president trying to influence what the Fed was doing. Yeah, and, I yeah. think that's that's, that's and a then great Volcker point. came in. Yeah. So so the pol- you know we say policy error, but it, it was. But yeah. you know it's made, it doesn't go entirely to the Fed, right? It goes to the the fact that the Fed was not independent or completely independent from the executive branch. The right. president, well, you know, had influence. Uh, over over that certainly i think richard nixon used his influence aggressively to try, try to keep interest rates down and mm-hmm. obviously that exacerbated things um i think so, it was the in- inconsistency of the policy as well right that was a lesson learned just first they tighten then they loosen then they, <laughs> it was just yeah uh very confusing for businesses and consumers to understand what the policy was and right. volcker right made it very clear inflation's job one this is what we're going to do was no ambiguity uh, around it. And I think that was also helpful in setting those expectations and yeah. getting us back on course. So. Yeah, it's a good point. Good, good point. Throughout the 70s, central banks couldn't quite figure, what do I worry about the unemployment? Do I worry about the inflation? Yeah. They kept swinging back and forth and you didn't, you got both high inflation and high unemployment, nothing worked out. Right. Volcker right. said, "Now nah, we're not doing any of that. I'm worried about inflation. I'm letting the economy go where it needs to go to get inflation back down. Yeah. Uh, and interestingly enough, it took a while to get inflation expectations all the way back down yeah. to the, something the Fed would feel comfortable. I mean, Paul Volcker, I think he was chair of the Fed from 1979 to 1987, I think. And Greenspan followed in 1987. And he continued to, he didn't follow a similar policy. You know, the, he called it a policy of opportunistic disinflation, right? Where, you know, he didn't, push the economy into recession like Volcker did. But he said, if the economy goes into recession, I'm not going to get it out very fast because I, I want to keep the unemployment rate high and, and make sure I ring out that wage price spiral and those inflation expectations. And it finally probably wasn't until, you know, when, uh, well into the 2000s, you know, towards the end of Greenspan's term that inflation finally came back, settled in to infl- uh, where the, um, the Fed wanted them, you know, their target. That, I guess that's the other thing to point out. Back in the 70s and 80s, there was no inflation target, right? There was no explicit inflation target. Mm-hmm. No one said 2% is the number, right? No. It wasn't clear. No. No. no, it wasn't until recently that they actually put yeah, the paper. Yeah, I mean, recent meaning in the last couple of decades. But, yeah, the last yeah. couple of decades, yeah. Yeah, right. So that, I guess that's the other. And there was no uh, policy statement either. Yeah. So markets just had to inter- infer what the Fed was doing by what was going on in markets. So, yeah, you you won't believe this, but when I first started, uh, the Fed never announced what the, even the federal funds rate target was. You had to right. figure that out by mm-hmm. looking in the market, saying where yep. is it trading. So they wouldn't announce anything. You had to, you know, the, it was completely opaque. You know what they were doing. So it wasn't it until re- 1994 that they released their first statement. I think is that right? Was it? Yeah, I thought it was 1994. Right? Yeah, it sounds right. 
Yeah, in, under Greenspan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, thinking about the causes then, that gets to policy. So we've got the shocks, the supply shocks. Obviously, we've got that, the high inflation. Uh, we don't have as the same problem structurally. I think we're in a better place there, but it really boils down to policy. And we learn from the policy mistakes of the seventies uh, that it probably, it makes more sense for the fed to, if inflation is high, ring out the inflation first, make sure that that's back at their target inflation inflation and inflation expectations are back to their target and then you worry about the economy and where the economy is and so that's kind of sort of where we are right now right and that means what that effectively means is the fed is going to push us into recession sooner rather than later. they're not going to wait if inflation mm -hmm. remains high and accommodate it they're going to fight it and wring it out if that means recession so be it get inflation back down and then once you get inflation back down, then you start worrying about getting unemployment back down. And that's what the Fed has basically been saying. That's what they're communicating is that now, we're going until it's we almost get point blank, back. right? Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, literally, they're they're telling you what they're going to do. Mm -hmm. You know, you go look at the their forecast. They're saying, yeah, we're raising the funds rate three and a half to four percent. You know, in, in the next few meetings, we're, we're going to ring this out. We're going to ring out this inflation. Yep. Right. Um, and I, I get, again, that, that goes, also goes back to Europe and some questions about whether the European Central Bank is going to be similarly predisposed to do that. I mean, because the Europeans before all of this had much lower inflation and much lower interest rates. I mean, they had up until a week or two ago, three weeks ago, they had negative interest rates. So, you know, they're obviously now raising rates aggressively, but they're still incredibly low mm -hmm. and they it seems more likely that they would make a mistake that they would be slower to raise rates uh to ring out that inflation uh and uh, ensure we don't get into a stagflation scenario what about, what about on the fiscal policy side um what would be a mistake there at this point student loan forgiveness yeah <laughs> Okay, so that, the president announced that today, his student loan program. But there's a lot of cross-currents in that, right? Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that that has any bearing on growth or inflation. I mean, on the one, you know, you have the debt, debt forgiveness, all else being equal, that, that would juice growth and inflation. But then you also have uh, the resumption of the, more, uh, of the payments. There was a moratorium on student loan payments during the pandemic. That is now going to come to an end. That would be a restraint maybe. on growth and inflation. <laughs> well, maybe, really? You think? Oh, well, they extended it again, right? So, oh, yeah. <laughs> Who's to say? Yeah, yeah, end. right. Good point. But don't you think at this point? You, well, I've been wrong before. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Good point. Good point. If, if they don't, then you're right. It would be to cross purposes of the Fed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But if you let the moratorium expire and payments begin, then you do the arithmetic, it kind of washes out any impact on growth or inflation that you have on, on the debt forgiveness. Um, but the, the magnitude is questionable, right? That I think that's small. really depends on the details. Yeah. All right. If, if things are extended out longer, how exactly the debt is forgiven. So, yeah, good point. I, I think you're right. I think, yeah, you're right. Yes, there will be an impact. How big of an impact? 
really depends on the yeah how this thing gets rolled out yeah but i guess you would i mean more broadly you'd say anything any def deficit finance fiscal support or stimulus would probably be a mistake right in the current environment mm -hmm. yep yeah i mean and, and it feels like everything any proposals now being looked no matter what it is is being looked at through the prism of what does it mean for inflation like the inflation reduction act although that doesn't significantly impact inflation in the near term and obviously everything was looked at through that prism you know is is it going to significantly and in that case it was not deficit financed it was it was paid for or more than paid for yeah. everything except tax cuts right <laughs> everything except tax cuts i don't think there would be much uh interest or discussion around the uh, at least from one side of the aisle uh if we propose tax cuts at this point in terms oh. of the inflationary consequence but <laughs> okay <laughs> really uh, yeah, you you guys are a little so cynical. cynical. Little my cynical. Gosh, you guys yeah. are really cynical. Yeah. Oh. You're so cynical; it's over my head. It takes me a while to catch up <laughs> to it. Jeez, Louise. Uh, I guess I suppose you're right, though. I suppose you're right. Okay, uh, so what are we concluding here? Then uh, less likely, we much less likely, we're going to have a stagflation scenario here in the okay. U.S. In the U.S. Okay. Well, a severe stagflation scenario, right? Under your definition, if it's just one yeah. percent increase in inflation, one percent increase in unemployment, yeah, I don't know if that's that's certainly not yeah. very remote. <laughs> yeah, right. So I, yeah, it's not way out there on the tail. Yeah, of possible mm -hmm. outcomes. Yeah, yeah. a '70s style stagflation scenario, which I think is what most people have in mind. I think that is pretty far out on the tail, given the Fed's resolve. But yeah, well, that was that was like high single digit double digit unemployment and double digit inflation that yeah. feels like that's that, way out that's yeah world. right mm -hmm. okay because we used to go back to our rule from using the misery index it's at 12 now that's what it was in 2011 and i don't think anyone would argue that we had stagflation in 2011. no say that again the misery index is yeah. currently at the same level it was in uh 2011. oh and oh i see because no one was talking about stagflation yeah. in 2011. Right. Because inflation was on the floor at that time. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Okay. And that goes back to my point. It's got to be high inflation, high unemployment. That, yeah. Correct. Yeah. Okay. All right. So what, what uh, indicators should we be looking at to gauge whether we're going down the stagflation path? What would you look at to gauge you know, if that scenario is coming to, to fruition? I'd say the expectations are number one. Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. Are they getting unanchored or are they coming in or yep. as a precursor of where things might be headed and how consumers and investors will change their behavior. Right. And they're anchored. Market-based market -based measures mm. of inflation expectations. Have you, have you looked at five-year, five-year forwards? Well, have you looked at one-year, five-year forwards? You, you're cherry picking. No, they're I'm not cherry picking. <laughs> I was, I, actually, I was going to ask you, what is your number one favorite measure of inflation expectations? Five-year five, five forwards? Uh, I mean, that would be probably up top for the long run, right? For the long run. And, the, okay, and the, that's, the that's inflation five years from now five in the subsequent five-year period. So that's mm -hmm. way out there in the future, right? Yeah, and I forget which region. And that one, that one is anchored, right? I think that is anchored. I think oh, Ryan's yeah. right. No one it, thinks- It's always been anchored though. Yeah. It I never think. even came close to being unanchored, right? Yeah. Okay. One way or another, we're going to- Get back keep, there. Get inflation yeah. there. Yeah. Well, they're, they're saying like us, there's no such, we're not going to have stagflation. That's not happening. Correct. 
not right. to that magnitude. No. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, what is your favorite measure, Ryan? Five year, five year fours, and oh, then it also is. The, okay. I, oh, I think, all right. Is it the I forget which regional Fed does it? They adjust five year, five year fours for like the liquidity premium. So it's a real measure of inflation expectations. So that's my number one. All right, and you're okay. That's anchored. You're right, Chris. Mm -hmm. What's yours? I keep an eye on the five year break even, just because it's readily available. Um, and w explain what that is. So that's the difference between uh, yield on a, a nominal five-year treasury and a, a tips uh, five-year treasury, so an inflation-protected Okay, and what's uh, that security. right now? I don't know what it is right now. I was about to look it up. Yeah, <laughs> but quickly. I got it. Last I looked, it was it was cut. It certainly had come in, but, but it was um, on the high side, right? It was two not. Point, yeah, two point seven seven. Okay, so that's high. Right? That is high. It was three and a half during earlier this year. It's come down at the start yeah, yeah. of the yeah. Invasion, it should, right? It should be no more than ideally, right? You you want it two and a half, no more. Right. So we're twenty we're spitting distance. Yeah, okay, fine. Fair enough. Fair enough. Three and a half, I would be concerned. Oh, here's about. the other thing that gives yeah, me some yeah. solace on that though, uh, Chris. It's five years, right? So you know inflation in the first year is gonna be high. Right? Sure. So actually you could it might actually be two and a half, right? So in the say in the first year it's uh, uh, high by five percentage points. It's seven and a half percent in the first year. You know, divide by five, right? It's well, actually, coming in. Even, yeah. No, less than that. If it's five percentage points over, divide by five, that's, you know, it's even less than that. What am I saying? You know, if it's, if it's, I know, <laughs> no cowbell for me. Yeah. Okay. We're, if it's a hundred, if it's 1.25 percentage points high in the first year, Right, and you divide by five. That's twenty-five basis points per annum, isn't it? Right. So yes. that's very so they that may actually be consistent with two and a half percent. To my point, one year, five year forwards. Right, one year, five year forwards is one year from now. So forget about the next year because we know that by definition that's going to be high, and it's the five year period after that. And that is, I last I looked, on the high side. If you look at the also ICE high. measure. The International Continent Exchange, they put together a, uh, a measure based on break-evens and also on inflation swaps, another way the bond market votes on inflation. And that's at two, uh, yesterday that was at 2.8%. That made yep. me a little nervous. That made me a little nervous. It's up. I mean, if, if you look at the inflation swap curve, so what's inflation you know, expectations over various time horizons, it's, it, for the most part, they're, they're saying we're going to get inflation back in the next couple of years down to 2%. Okay, fine. All right. In so, fact, can you? Uh, I haven't looked at that swap curve. Can you just give me, send me the uh, link to something I can look at, or is that all, off of? Uh, it's off my uh, my computer. I can. I'll send it to. You. Okay, send it to me. Okay. On Monday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When you, when you get back from the your, your bum beach vacation. Mm -hmm. Okay, you got it. Uh, anything? What other measure? So it's only we're looking at inflation expectations. I, I get. I totally get that. And right now, that's we're debating it. But it feels sort of okay, you know, maybe on the, a little bit on the high side, but within, as Ryan said, spitting distance of where we want it to be. So no big deal. What about wage growth? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think we should be focused on wage growth. I mean, I think in the current context, probably, right? Yeah, the employment, the employment cost index. That's growing pretty quickly. Yeah. What's the EC, you want to describe the ECI? I know we had some past podcasts. But. Yeah, the employment cost index is a measure of, of – 
nominal wages in the U.S., but unlike average hour earnings and other measures of wages, they can adjust for composition changes. So, you know, average hour earnings get skewed because, you know, if a lot of job growth in leisure hospitality, lower paying industries, that's going to bias average hour earnings one way and vice versa. But the employment cost index adjusts for that. So that's why I think it's one of the best measures of wages, along with the, the Atlanta Fed wage tracker, because they yeah. kind of do a similar thing that the ECI does. And they're, and they're both over 5% year over year. Correct. Right. And by my calculation, what we'd want to see something closer to three and a half percent. Yeah. And so that, one thing I'm, I'm tracking, like when that kind of leads the ECI by a couple of months is uh, the quits rate. So when you have a very high quit rate, you know, job switchers, they're typically getting higher pay increases and that's going to juice wage growth. So the quit rate is still very, very high. So it doesn't look like nominal wage growth is going to moderate in the next you know, quarter or two. Oh, is that right? Mm-hmm. I, that's interesting. Um, that's how I forecast the ECI is one of the inputs is the quits rate. Is it show any kind of leveling off in growth or is it going to show? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So there's a little bit of leveling off and then okay. you know, I expect the quits rate to come in you know, right. over the next year or so. Right, right. And I said 3.5% just for context, that would be 2% inflation plus 1.5% productivity growth. So if mm-hmm. that's 3.5%. If you're three and a half percent, workers are getting their share of the economic pie, and uh, you know that would be consistent with stable two percent inflation. And we're at five percent, mm-hmm. so I think really we should watch that that uh, ECI, the Employment Cost Index, the Atlanta Wage Tracker. Hopefully, we level off around five and start to come in. And mm-hmm. the quit rate is a good third indicator. If that's yep. a good leading indicator, as you say, is a good leading indicator of wage growth, which sounds very intuitive. I had never, I hadn't looked at that, but that that sounds interesting. What about the beverage curve? So yeah. the beverage curve is the relationship between job openings and the unemployment rate. So where we are, like right now, we're you know we have very high job opening rate and a very low unemployment rate, and that's what the Fed wants is to bring that. Uh, uh, job opening rate down, but without nudging the unemployment rate higher. Yeah. How so, many of those openings do you think are real? Uh, yeah. Right. That's a, that's a, that's a whole nother podcast. Yeah. Right. Important one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we've got 10 million plus job openings for context before the pandemic, when the labor market was really tight, I think it was seven, seven and a half million. So we're, we're at 10, the peak was 11 million plus. So we're coming yeah. down but mm-hmm. we're still very elevated. And the, that that doesn't give you a lot of confidence that wage growth is going to start to moderate here, get back to that 3.5%, except no. for the, what you just alluded to, and that is, do you really believe it's a hard 10, and a half, 10 million job right. openings? Like, I, I would suspect companies, once they put up a job posting, are going to be pretty reluctant to take it down. What they do is they just slow boat the any any yeah. hiring you say okay let's keep the interview process going sort of tell the candidate to come in a month from now we'll kind of take our time and maybe we'll offer them something next year on the other side of whatever's happening now you know that kind of thing so i you know i think there's we got to come up with a term i think there's i call them soft openings you know as opposed to hard job openings that was the case a few months ago but there's no way of I, is there any good way of gauging that? I don't think so. I can't think of a good way. How how real are those job openings? Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. But that's that's a good one, though. We probably should watch that, too. So the JOLTS survey, 
job opening labor turnover survey, which has the job openings data, the quits rate, layoffs, uh, that would be right. you know, good to watch. Okay. Um, well, Chris's favorite, jobless claims. And jobless claims, yeah. Mm -hmm. Window into layoffs, which yep. again, don't show any real meaningful erosion, at least not yet. Uh, okay. Uh, any, what about, he, I, I say this with some intrepidation, productivity growth. <laughs> I mean, obviously, as I said, 3.5% is the bogey that assumes 1.5% productivity growth. We certainly, if you believe the data, aren't getting that now, right? I mean, productivity is declining, at least over right. the last year. Do, should we pay any attention to that, or is that just the measurement issues that are just too much to, to really use that measure in the near term? It's a bit of a lag measure. I was just going to say I'm skeptical because productivity is volatile, very volatile from quarter to quarter, even year to year. Yeah. So if we're trying to like assess stagflation risk in the near term in the next 12, 18 months, I put productivity pretty low on my list. Right. Okay. Yeah, I kind of agree with you. I mean, if it was a, a if it was a, a more accurate measure of reality, maybe, but I don't Correct. feel like it. Um, okay. Uh, any any other indicators you would kind of point to that might be helpful here? Uh, any Ryan? Anything in the financial markets that you know think would be useful? I mean, of course, oil prices, like different commodity yeah, prices. Going back to the shocks. Yeah. Some, yeah, that's a great point, though. You could, mm -hmm. You're right. I mean, a lot depends on what's happening with these supply shocks, right? Correct. Yeah. I mean, if oil prices are rising, that means much more likely stagflation will become a, a problem. If the oil prices are falling or down, mm -hmm. not not so much or less so. And that, that's, that's encouraging. And then getting back to another one of Chris's causes, I mean, you could look at you know, the market implied path of the Fed funds rate. Yeah. So if that starts to really deviate from what the Feds is saying, then, you know, I mean, right now they're anticipating the Fed cutting rates in late 2023. So basically they're saying the Fed's going to tame inflation and realize it did too much and then start normalizing and returning the Fed funds rate to its equilibrium rate. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's wrap this up then. Uh, like we, typically do uh, so that we make this more concrete. Let me ask you this. What do you think the odds are of a stagflation scenario developing over the next 12 to 18 months? And when I say that, uh, kind of a minimum viable stagflation scenario, you know, by my definition, uh, one Percentage unemployment being a percentage point above full employment, at least four and a half, probably closer to five. Inflation one point above the Fed's target on CPI, so let's say three and a half, maybe closer to four. And that we have this in a persistent way. You know, it's not the, the it feels like it's going to remain in place for you know throughout most of this period through 2023, the next 12 to 18 months. That's the stagflation scenario that I would say would be the minimum. Uh, uh, kind of criteria for be, being labeled a stagflation scenario. So what's the probability of that happening over the next 12 to 18 months? Chris, you want to go first? Sure. So, so for the U.S., we're talking about here. U.S. Uh, and then uh, we, can do, we can do Europe or U.K. Yep, or next, yeah. Do it, yeah. Uh, I would say 10%. 10. For, the, for minimum viable. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, That's not that high. It's not that high. I, for me, it, uh, I view the distribution as a bit more... Um, barbelled, if you will, either the Fed is going to be really aggressive and just will go right into recession, right? Bring inflation down with it. 
um, as a, as an option or, or not, we'll, we'll skate by. I don't know that we would have the conditions for a stagflation scenario building up, right. The fed kind of easing back and indecisive that I just don't put a lot of, um, probability weight on that scenario rising. Yeah. Okay. And, and, uh, Ryan, what's, what probability would you put on that scenario? Yeah, I'd be close to Chris 10, 15% because I think the fed's going to kill inflation. Right. But by the way, can I ask in that scenario, do we ultimately end up in recession? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah okay. Is that another feature of stagflation scenario that you ultimately end up in recession? Probably, right? Yeah. Yeah, I've always thought of it as recession plus. Right. That's, oh, right. oh, is it? Uh, well, you. Oh, you're saying you have to be in recession to get unemployment up that high? Not necessarily. Yeah. Though. Oh, you think? Oh, maybe. Well, oh, okay. Then it goes yeah. back to the gray zone, right? Yeah, interesting. interesting Stagflationary. Thing. Yeah, yeah. If, if I go up by a point on unemployment, that feels a like a recession. Right. Well, remember, there's never been an, uh, a recession when no, unemployment rate goes up by 30, 40 basis points on a three-month moving average basis. So, yeah, you get one point, even yeah. if you spread it out over several months. Yeah. that's a recession. Yeah, yeah. I guess in a stagflation scenario, the recession just happens later rather than sooner, yes. right? Because right. to allow the inflation to be to develop and become more persistent, mm -hmm. right? So it's not your a typical recession, if there's such a thing. In the current context, that would be you go into recession fast. The Fed pushes us in fast to bring out the inflation. Where a stagflation scenario is, they don't do that, and we kind of hang in this this tough world of recession, but still very high inflation for a while. And then the Fed says enough already, yep. you know, I got to ring this out and they push us into recession. It just happens later. Mm -hmm. Okay. All what right. are your odds? About the same. Right. Yeah. I wouldn't argue. I, I, might, I might even put it a little lower. You said 10, Chris said 10, you said 10 to 15, I'd say five to 10, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. I think the probabilities are pretty low. Uh, so, the, so the fact that we all agree on something means we're going to have stack No, I know. <laughs> That's yeah. never good. Well, the only reason I get to five to 10 is only to the point you made that the supply shock could reverse. It could get worse again, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, who's to say the pandemic doesn't come back around, right? Or who's to say something doesn't have an oil, happen in oil markets or in the refinery industry that causes oil or gas prices to go skyward again? You know, so... Given that there is some meaningful, you know, five, I say five to 10 is meaningful, but I don't think, I think the odds of a mistake, a policy mistake, they're pretty close to nil. I just don't see that happening. Yeah. I mean, the Fed is on the war path here, right? There, anytime inflation expectations look like they're coming untethered, they're going to step on the brakes. I you think. mean a policy mistake to cause stagflation? Well, you can remember, still have a policy mistake. Yeah, like policy going, makes yeah. the cause it. I mean, yeah. this goes back to the causes of stagflation, mm -hmm. right? It It's the supply shock, it's the policy error, and it's the structural issues. I'm saying I, I can't see it. The structural issues are much less relevant unless there's something I'm missing. I just don't see it. Uh, I mean, there are structural forces that might result in higher rates of inflation than we're anticipating, like the backtracking on globalization, for example. That's, you know, maybe... Global is, the increase in globalization in the last decade really weighed on inflation. Now we're backtracking for lots of obvious reasons. Right. So maybe there are some structural things that I'm discounting, but I tend to think they're small. The thing that gets me to five to ten percent is the shock. You know that the shock right. can come back around. It's not on the policy side. I, I think. I think. But anyway.
What, All do, you right. for, what do you think for Europe or Japan? Oh, yeah, great point. Uh, well, can we make a distinction between UK and the rest of Europe, uh, the e yeah. Eurozone? I say UK. I think UK. they do. What do you say on UK? <laughs> What's that? I think they do. So. Oh, yeah, they do. Yeah, can we do that, please? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, okay, what do you say on the UK and then on the Eurozone? This is oh, to Chris. Uh, uh, substantially higher. I, yeah. I'm trying to think how where I would go. Yeah. I'd put it higher in the UK probably yeah. than the Eurozone. Yeah. And pretty high. Um, Over 20. They're all 30, 40%. Oh, mm. wow. That is high. Because I do think that the they're much more vulnerable to the shocks. Another shock. Yes. Okay. Did you too, uh, Ryan? Yeah. Um, 30 to 40? 30 to 40, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I'm not that high. I'm, I'm closer to 20, maybe 25 if you press me. And then on the Eurozone. But you came in at 10 until you heard the 30, right? Yeah. No, 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 no. I wasn't at 10. I might have gone up from 15 to 20. I don't know. Uh, subconscious. All about anchoring, right? Yeah, that's not anchoring. You're pulling me northward. On the Eurozone, I, I, I say that that's higher than the US, but lower than UK. So in my, I'd say 10 to 15. So. You know, five to ten for the U.S., ten to fifteen for the eurozone, say twenty percent ish for for the U.K. Something like that. Hmm. Yeah. All right. What about like a Japan? I've heard people trying to figure that one out. Right. That's. <laughs> Wait, well, Japan has inflation. Yeah, what does that even yeah. mean? Right. It's 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 tough to. Well, their target is two, and they just barely got above two with all of this mess. They yeah, I think they're like two and. No, I'm not worried. Two, about three, two, four. But yeah, I think it's still dis a deflation worry, not a stagflation right. worry. Um, okay. Uh, anything else on this topic uh, that we think is important that we missed? I think we covered a lot of ground. Um, mm -hmm. I think we feel feel pretty good about it. Okay. Um, any uh, last call? Anything else on stagflation? All right. Very good. I think we're going to call this a podcast. Uh, and uh, listener, if, if we did miss something, I just have this nagging feeling that there's something we missed that was big, uh, but I can't think what it is. Let us know, and we'll come back around and uh, address that. So with that, uh, uh, thank you very much, and we'll uh, talk to you soon. Take care now. Oh, by the way, uh, I, this is what I forgot to say. We run these scenarios uh, across uh, different countries all over the world, US, UK, Europe, uh, not just the uh, baseline scenario where everything kind of works out, uh, not just a typical recession where we suffer kind of a, a downturn uh, consistent with the average recession since World War II, but we also run stagflation scenarios. So if you're interested, let us know and uh, we can help you with that. So uh, now, for real, uh, thank you for listening in. Talk to you next week.